0: to Working
1: Dog Radio
0: <coughs> broadcasting the bite.
2: This episode of Working Dog Radio is brought to you in part by the best training conference on the planet, Hits K9 Training and Conference, www.hitsk9.net or call Jeff Barrett 863-529-5113. We'll see you there.
0: One of our other great sponsors, be sure to check them out. Ray Allen Manufacturing up in Colorado Springs, rayallen.com. Be sure to use the discount code WORKINGDOGRADIO for 10% off.
2: Spell it out. Get the discount. Everyone knows Ted and I are huge fans of Dogtra. Uh, We use all their products, lots of stuff. Dogtra.com. Use the discount code WDR10 for 10% off a single item over $200.
0: All right, everybody loves drag and drop the easiest way possible. The easiest way to get a kennel up and running is to get them from Horizon Structures. Go to horizonstructures.com or call 1-888-447-4337. Make sure you tell them that Working Dog Radio sent you. There you
2: go. One of our newest sponsors and one of our favorites, Kinetic Dog Food. KineticDogFood.com or call 512-279-8966. Get your dog on the right track.
0: One of our other fantastic sponsors that are run by the Heisers, some of the best people in the industry. We love those guys. Uh, Looking for a reputable canine kennel with dog sales and training services? They're located in sunny New Smyrna, Florida. Southern Coast Canine provides services worldwide from purchasing your next single or dual-purpose working dog to handler courses and seminars. Southern Coast is a great resource, so check them out. And where you can check them out is Southern Coast Canine. That's letter K, number nine, dot com, or give them a call,
2: 877-903-DOGS. That's dogs. We get asked all the time what happens to all the working dogs once they retire, If the dogs are lucky, they get to retire with their handler. Sometimes those dogs are expensive in their retirement due to health issues sustained from injuries on the job or old age in general. That's a heavy burden for a lot of the handlers. Enter organizations like the Georgia Police Canine Foundation. These great folks assist law enforcement agencies with life-saving supplies and equipment for our canine officers and help provide assistance for them in their retirements. It can be hard finding an organization with dogs' best interests at heart, But we strongly encourage you to check out Georgia Police Canine Foundation. Great people doing great work.
0: All right, everybody, we are back. Working Dog Radio broadcasting the bite. Uh, I am Ted Summers from Tulsa, Oklahoma. With me, as always, from Canton, Ohio, is Eric Stambro. Eric, what's up?
2: um well this is when we're recording this is the um you know we're all in the coronavirus stuff today is monday um our governor uh issued a stay home order that begins tonight at midnight um, so today was the last day that my doggy daycare is open for the rest of this fight against this virus um kennels are considered essential business so i you know i will be going back and forth several times a day to the kennel um luckily i had sold several dogs home so down to three um they spend most of their time in the truck so i'll probably do that a lot they like being in there um so i will uh be doing that uh two of them i'm going to start doing obedience with which you're allowed to be outside you can do things they're just not in groups not at, you know out in the public yeah. So i'll probably be doing obedience stuff with them locked in my facility or maybe out out in my yard just depends on the weather because it's been raining pretty much nonstop here.
0: Yeah. we're uh, I got a handler school going on. And so, like, for people listening that don't know, my facility is um, access controlled via a gate, um, via security cameras and everything else. Like, you can't just come onto my property. And we're, we have, like, you know, razor wire and all this other stuff that we share a facility with somebody else that's non-canine related. And um, so, I mean, ours is pretty secure like uh, you're and i'm not open to the public so uh it's pretty much just my handlers and me and all of my handlers have been given orders to not you know it's all essential call non-essential calls and i've got some guys that have uh, been told they can't leave the county until this is over and like all that kind of stuff so it is uh definitely an interesting time for sure so uh the oklahoma governor is not going to issue a stay home order um oklahoma city tulsa some of the larger outlying cities in both of those have issued their own uh, closed restaurants and bars. So basically I do – my life doesn't change a whole lot. I basically go from here to the kennel and work and come home, and that's about it. <laughs> so uh, that's kind of all I do. <laughs> so other than that, uh, I got a retread here, Uh super nice dog, Riddick. That's good. Well, uh, with his, with his we call handler, that every so. day of
2: the week, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, so yeah, that's pretty much only days that end in Y. Um, yeah, I, uh, with this dog here now that I know is, uh, redick super nice dog. He's a retread. Uh, he's got a new handler, um, really big German shepherd, super nice dog. And then, um, man, we got a couple of, I got a bunch of green dogs or a bunch of green dogs we're working right now. Um, got tra- Travis's trainer school going on still. He's about, I think he just finished his first semester or what they call a semester. So, um, that's good. I think he's going to be with me till July. So. And then after that, i will probably be here. Yeah. Uh, Coming on at Torchlight and doing
2: um, I am some happy. stuff for this one. I am happy to announce that. Oh, cool. I'm happy to announce that Karma is finally sold. Karma, the mm-hmm. bomb dog. That no oh, one yeah, would look right. at because she has pointy ears. Right. So, <laughs> Sheriff's Office. Yeah, Sheriff's Office. I had her for a year. No one would look at her. She's amazing. So, Sheriff's Office from New York came over the other day and tested her, and loved her. So they're going to come back this week and get her quick. It's like a two-and-a-half-hour, three-hour drive. So they're going to pop, pop over, grab her, and head back. I will not be shaking their hands, though, because they're coronavirus central.
0: <laughs>
2: Dirty ass.
0: <laughs> I'm just kidding. Everybody in New York, chill out. Like, just relax. <laughs> Don't lick doorknobs and wash your hands. Uh, so we had on um, Dave courier Wireback. And then we had on Subtle back on to talk about um, puppies and stuff. And while Courier was on, we talked about market training. So both of those dudes um, made some comments. Um, they kind of glossed over a couple things during um, during the explanation of some of those things. Um, Courier talked about some conflict issues with handlers and dogs, and how market training prevents that from happening, and some other stuff. And then um, Subtle made a comment where he said, "You know, if I don't see something by a certain age in a puppy." I just know it's not going to be there, and then we just kind of went down the conversation, right? So there was a lot in that comment that um, is kind of assumed, and Eric and I both, and our email, at the podcast, got a lot of requests either through a direct messaging on Facebook or Instagram or email or whatever. Like, what, like, what did he see, or did not he not see? And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, rather than put words in his mouth, I can either have him back on, um, and then our guest that we have on today. Um, the opportunity came up to interview him, and he's been on the short list for since before we recorded our first episode. Like you know, I sat down and had a giant list of people, um, and this guest has always been on this list. So um, it's been a uh, it's been a good. I think this is a good opportunity to bring him on to talk about those things because he's extremely successful with puppy selection and both in breeding his own dogs, selecting it out of the litter, and then raising it to a world level for competition or a world level like competition type work, and then also on the conflict side. So, you know, to kind of dovetail on those two other episodes with Croyer and Subtle, we have on today Ivan Balabanov. Ivan, how are you?
1: Hey guys. Thank you for having me. Doing, I guess I'm doing all right, considering the situation. Very much the same as you on a complete lockdown, living in a country makes it a little bit easier. I'm, I i do not know, a little bit, probably worried about dog food, to be honest. And I, I went and bought a bunch of bags and I went and bought a few more, but yeah, other than that, life is just as normal training, making videos. And unfortunately all the competitions got canceled, but
0: Yeah, uh, you know, for everybody listening, um, we do this on the internet. And since you're all at home watching um, the Tiger Guy documentary, um, everybody's internet is super slow. You all are slowing down my streaming. Um, So uh, we're going to clean this up after the fact, but uh, it should be a good interview. And um, I don't know that guy for everybody that's asking me. Um, I do not know the Tiger Guy, but you're down in Florida, right, Ivan? So... You're, do you have any yeah. neighbors that have tigers? <laughs> no, no, no That's
1: tiger. Kind of, well, actually, you know, no, you of never know who's the neighbor here. <laughs> it, it
0: is Florida. Every time I see something, it's ridiculous in the news. I'm like, of course it's in Florida. Um, except the entire documentary that dude's in Oklahoma. Yeah. So, um, so tell us a little bit of your background. <laughs> um, obviously, um, you're not from the United States, so <laughs> tell us uh, a little bit of your background for those people that are listening that don't know um, who you are, how you got into dog training, um, and then kind of walk us through um, some of the competition and some of the success that uh, you've had and how we end up um, in 2020.
1: With that accent, I cannot hide it, and I stop hiding it anyway now. Kind of, I like that I have the accent, but it's funny. Sometimes they will ask me where I'm from. At the supermarket, and I would tell them that I'm from Plant City, which is <laughs> where I live now, and I would be just like die laughing but um <clears throat> so my story we're gonna and give you a little bit because it's you know i've been I've been in a for a long long time very long time we're talking of uh, early ni uh, early eight Started in Bulgaria, it was the it was the whole communist era. The you know the Berlin Wall was still out there and everything. So my my very first introduction to to more serious training was with the Russian style military type of training since we were in the same were so packed at the time and and you know mostly he never liked dogs, but he made me believe that he did and and I listened to him a lot and that's how I got into it um started training started to do pretty good had a had a a, a female poly because that's how long that was that was still at the lassie was a big deal at that time um then I had a German Shepherd, that was a East German, German Shepherd, which is kind of funny how people now talk about still these lines. And right. There is no such thing. But anyway, I won a bunch of competitions in Bulgaria. It was Dog training was, for some reason, coming really, it was, it was very, very easy for me. I, I understand dogs somehow. Powell. So I didn't know much. And, and I was just winning all these military competitions at the time. Uh, there was also civilians who were allowed to compete at just different times. Um, but area plus the area was the whole restrictions of everything. So I had to, I, I took a really, really big chance and, and basically escaped from the country risking i mean really who knows what could have happened but it was a, and what it was interesting i did that because of dog training not because of anything else There was just it was kind of like a dead end for me in bulgaria so i had to get out i went to belgium and that got introduced at the time to the malinois and the, the belgian ring the french ring i was um Right at the time when Mondue Ring was getting formed, I think that it was formed in 1987. But what happened was, uh, you know, for a few years, there was just a lot of clashing of which exercise to get accepted from the French ring and which from the Belgian ring and KMPV and IPO and things like that. And it was, uh... so I kind of witnessed that a little bit, which was very interesting wanted to train high-level dogs wanted a Malinois. So I got a Malinois from uh, at that time the, the most reputable well-known kennel, the Dioputois. I don't know how much you guys are familiar with those lines but uh, that's kind of where I started. Um, the guy's name is Luke Bruch. It's only French right there we speak English we couldn't understand much each other but he knew that i wanted to get a a, a dog to compete with so i was at his house and this is a I, i'll just kind of give you that story because it's a very cool story i don't know how much time we have but it's a cool story as far as puppies and breeding and a breeder that understands what they look for that's kind of why i'm going to expand a little bit on this for you so i go to his house somebody recommend recommends me talks to me about it and it's like, well. So we go there, and he shows me a bunch of dogs, and there is this one really, really, really cool eight-week-old puppy, dark as hell, carries himself like a king. I'm like, that's the dog I want. And he just looks at me kind of disappointed. And I'm super excited. I'm like, man, that's it. Now now I'm going to just have everything, you know, I just got out of Bulgaria, I'm gonna have that top dog, I'm gonna do all these things, just went to La La Land from zero to nothing. And he's like, well, that's not the right dog. And I'm like, I don't care. I I, I like him. We are connecting, right? (laughs) And he's (laughs) like, okay, we argue, I see him starting (laughs) to get upset, kind of frustrated. And he's like, well, then he talks to my friends. It's like, well, does he want to compete, or he? What does he want? What do you want me to do with him? And they're like, no, he he wants to compete. And so we go back and forth a bunch of times. Finally, he's like, I have a dog for you. And I'm like, okay, you know, bring the dog. So he brings me this about four and a half, five month old female Malinois with a huge white chest, white paws, like, see, just ruined everything for me. I'm like, oh my God, now how do I convince him that I don't want this one, but this one. So what ends up happening, the guy is like, okay, you're taking both dogs home. In two weeks, you're bringing one back. I wasn't a trainer. I am right now, but still at the time I could, it wasn't hard to, to make and see the difference of the quality of the two dogs of course the weeks go by i bring the other the dark puppy back and that basically ended up being my foundation female We ended up having very good relationship i still was a very good friend of mine um and a lot of the dogs kind of crazy how how long ago it is but it doesn't seem that it's a long for me but when we're talking dogs like um you know, anybody that knows Malinois or if it doesn't know that far back, they can go and look at any pedigree, maybe fourth, fifth generations. And there is this cornerstones of dogs uh, like Beaver and gv and Elgos Ghost and Kim Duboiskay and dogs like that. But I actually had the fortune. I was really fortunate at the time that I played with them. I worked them. They beat me. I, I know them personally, you know? So it, it's it's very interesting that way. Um, so That was my foundation, Female. That's how I started. Then then I ended up, after a few years, I, I moved to, to the States. And I was doing some belgling. I, I don't know what to do. There were so many options coming out from the Eastern European country, where all you can do is this one thing, period. And all of a sudden there was IPO, there was Belgian ring there was no ring, there was French ring there was TMPV I mean Holland was like an hour away from where I lived. it was overwhelming it was like just amazing time you know so by the time I came here my that female she she knew to do all sorts of crazy things and I came to the station and it's like oh well, I guess we're going to have to really do IPO here because that, that was the big game at the time. And it still is. Um, but she was all, I mean, you know, she would buy the leg, the crotch, the armpit, and, you know, just a uh, uh, suit. So we had a lot of problems at some point, like uh, Dean Calderon and all these guys, old timers used to still laugh about this. As far as the, the, the next step, I basically trained her to, I switched everything and I trained her to do IPO. And I was, um, I don't know was at 93, 94, somewhere in there. And I I qualified for a world championship for the American team, which was, you know, just amazing. And then I placed 12th at the world championship of all three. And that was, with my own training, with my just anything that I knew to do, um, not really following a system or, or, or guidance that much. And that gave me a lot of confidence because I, I, I always believed that I can and I know, but that really was like, okay, nobody from the States ever has placed this high. And here I am in my first trial and did very, very nice. And if I knew how to handle better and know everything else, probably would have been much different. Um, besides that, I had to work. You know, coming from Belgium, uh, I used to work, lived in uh, Limburg. It's the Flemish part. I used to speak the language pretty good. Now I need some drinks to do that.
0: Huh.
1: Um, well, they all sound
0: drunk when they speak Flemish I did,
1: anyway. Um, I. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right, it sounds like they have a mouthful of marbles,
0: people. yeah. No, oh, they're great. I've I've been over there racing them. bikes and stuff, yeah. They're great, but I, now, I don't yeah. understand a word of that,
1: yeah. Those there's this girly sound that comes, yeah. But anyway, so, um, that was, um, you know, that's kind of where I started to breed. Nobody knew like anyone in San Francisco at the time. It was considered an alternate breed um there was not much ring sport going on there were few few little attempts to make personal protection sports i can't even remember the names of them but they kind of originated in california they stayed for a couple of years and and kind of fade away eventually psa came along and and i was like okay and yeah, that's gonna be just one more of those and it's gonna go away and actually here we are, it's, it's doing pretty good and, and, you know, definitely has its followers and interest. But, um, so when I was doing the IPO, then I was trying to do some other things, of course, and nobody knew my dog was a Malinois, like, oh, well, what do you have? And especially with all the white on her and a female, but then once she started to work, everybody was like, Oh man, this is really, really cool. Um, I had um, the first leader I had, and I I was living in San Francisco, pretty much downtown, and I was going to work in San Rafael, which is I had to go through Golden Gate Bridge. Luckily, I got that job because it allowed me to, you know, build up my credit and, and have some spend on my feet. But at the same time, I couldn't, you know, there was so much schedule that I couldn't really do much training on my own. I had my first leader of puppies in a condo in in San Francisco and they were 13. And by that time, <laughs> by the oh time God. they were six weeks old. Yeah. And my, my, my landlord knew that I have one dog and I had three old ones and I had to bring him one at a time. And there was no one to sell the puppies to. people didn't have a, idea what it is and it was uh it was really a German Shepherd, Rottweiler, Doberman kinda. So I ended up giving six of my puppies to um a guy but he, he had to you know, he said that he can find home for them. So I just gave him the puppies and then I was starting to be like maybe I should not be doing this. Maybe breeding is not necessarily the way to go here because nobody there's just no market over so then it was very strange um but then i had another dog of course uh, uh, a son from her a, a grandson actually i went through a few stages i had a i had a dog that i i decided okay I ipo was cool but i still had this bite by- suit kind of spark in me and, and i always do so we trained um In fact, um, the first dog that trained Mondio and went to the World Championship was a dog from my kennel, Bomer and Kathy O'Brien. And so I got a son from hers and I sold the dog. It was, um, this is the crazy thing with my dog. Um, I am right now still after so many years of breeding, still not having... A dog that I compete with, that I selected for myself. Never been a dog that gets sold, and for one reason or another came back. So the one dog, his name was Django. He came back because uh, the guy decided that he's going to get married and they're going to go on a world trip with a yacht and oh, he was. Four months old. I'm like, okay, just bring him back. I'll find a home for him. And it was hard to to find a home for him. I mean, he was a cool dog, so I liked him. I kept him, and I trained them. Um, and we're gonna. When we talk about training, I'm gonna get a little bit deeper with that. But just just to make a note for right now, like all of my training, like people always try to think uh, or ask me. If, Where did I learn and who I follow? Who is my, you know, guru? And and I really don't have anybody. Like I am in an army of one. And if I see somebody and some style of training, I can break it down for myself and be very competitive against. And that's always been... uh, interesting for me. So he was um, that dog, Django, by the age of three, he was not even three years old. I won the Malinois championship, I won the Albrecht championship, I won the German Shepherd championship, and I placed second in the world with him. That was 2001. And he was not even three years old. Um, we also won this trophy for the youngest dog and things like that. Um, it was a very exciting time. It was kind of the time that I finally was able to kind of confirm to myself that what I'm doing is actually it's just for real. And eventually he got hurt. The year after he got second at the world, he got hurt on a long bite. And things were never the same. Um, then there was another dog that also came back Kenny basically I sold them to a good friend of mine in Ohio and he came and I'm like man this is that's something special that has really really good potential you guys gonna go a long way and the puppy was six months old at the time by the time he was 10 months old the guy his name's Andy he contacted me he's like I don't know how you're gonna take this but that dog is way too good for me, and I, I feel like I'm going to waste them. And I was like, well, what do you want to do? I'm like, well, if you want to train them and go and compete. And I was like, well, I would love to do that, but it's always such a pain to to, to take on something like this and start putting all the time and effort, and, and next thing you know, the person decides that they want the dog back for whatever reason. I was like man i, I would take him, but you cannot do that to me. It's like I would never do it so we we ended up having this really crazy relationship, like like divorced parents i I would train the dog, he will come, then off season, I will send them back to to the family, and we pretty much spent i I probably spend more time with him than they did um but when I first took him back with me. I was telling all of my friends, I'm like, man, I will win everything with this dog, and I, I'm the kind of guy that people, people that know me and live like this, and kind of makes me. When I talk like this, it motivates me, and then I have to back up all the dog that I talk. And uh, so the dog came, and and. I've gathered all my friends to see him. Check him out. But let me let me just show you this ten-month-old what he can do. Man, that dog was depressed. Like I've never at the time I never thought emotions are that important. Of course, now we have science that finds things out. But as dog trainers, if you stay long enough, you don't end was amazing to see a dog that's just depressed. Like I would try to get him to play and he would just look at the ball. And he was obsessed with play. So outgoing confident dog. But he was just bummed out. That was for probably two weeks. He would not want to buy that sleeve. He would not want to buy that toy. The only thing that he would get happy about was my daughter, when she talks and she hangs out with him, he, he just melts. He had a. I was at a point that I'm like, okay, this is just, I, I cannot do this to that dog. Like, that's just, you know, who cares about world champion? So I call him, I'm like, man, it's not happening. It just like break my heart watching him like this. I know this, this is so wrong. But then two more days, as I was thinking that we're going to stop it. Two days and he decided that I'm okay. And so, at uh, times, the AWDS, the IPO competition, which is the all breeds. Uh, um, one year, I won the all breeds, I won the Malinois, I won the FCI, which is the all breed IPO competition, and I won the uh, Belgian Shepherd world championship. So in one year, basically I, I won everything possible, every competition from all the national championships to the, to world street. And then I'm like, okay, what do I do now? I just decided that there is nowhere to go from there. The only thing I can do is maybe I win again, or maybe no, but even if I do, so what's the big deal? And Knowing the situation with the family and everything, I was like, okay, let's let's just send him back. I got a son from him that somebody sent to me for training. They were doing PSA, and and he was I, I bred the dog and I sold him as a puppy. Um, his name is Ibor, and uh, the guy's name is Brian, and he he you know respected me a lot as a trainer. And he's like, man, everybody sees the dog and likes. but he's really kind of growly for a few months for training. Why not? Especially when it's something that comes out from my dogs. It's interesting, A weird behavior. You can see him, he really wants to bite and fight, but then he bites and then he's all like noisy. Then you ask him to do healing and he, like the moment you say heal, it's an instant that instead of looking up, he would just look at his left paw. And I have videos of this because it was just so amazing to watch. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? I call him. I talk to him. They're like, yeah, yeah, he's doing that. And I'm like, I, I, yeah, I know he's doing it, but do you know any where it comes from? And we're like, it's really weird shit. So um, I spent the two months, and, of course, the dog picked up very nicely. I liked them. I'm like man. Let me let me just take the dog. The dog is a different level of dog. Then ended up being my next dog. I, I.
0: That's that's kind of where I wanted this conversation to kind of end up. Um, all of your competition dogs have all been ones that you have selected or bred and or raised, or selected and raised from a very very young age. So, you know, one of the things that I, I kind of want you to talk about is what um, are you looking for in in puppies at specific ages, to say okay, this dog has what it takes to compete at the world level because you've won, like you said, you won national and breed championships and right. the world championships all in one year. I mean, multiple times. I mean, for people like when they hear this episode, they're gonna get a link to where to your resume and it's like fucking long in terms of winning, like everything there is almost. So you know, what are you looking for, and at what specific ages are you looking at? things um, for people listening to say, okay, you know, I can kind of agree and I can kind of look at that. So talk a little bit about
1: um, how you select yeah, those puppies. Yeah, yeah. So these are, there's two things that I'm completely obsessed about. It's training, teaching and learning and breeding. And the competitions are almost the byproduct or or the confirmation of my, my theories and my product on the right path. In, in my selection, in my breeding, and in my training program. It's like a, a big checkup, and it's so important to me. And, and people are like, well, you've been doing it for so long. When are you going to stop? And I and I just cannot stop because I'm not chasing to win something. I've done that many times, but the training is interesting. And when the training changes, I want to test it. The breeding is different. And it's evolving and I want to test that. So that's kind of why I'm doing it now in, in, as far as selection and breeding, I am, um, I went back and forth a lot on this in, in all the years that I've been breeding dogs and training dogs. And I think partially it's the whole society that makes us, you know, there was a, at the time, the big behaviorism and, and, you know going way, way back into the very early 1900s where we were thinking that there was the famous quote and Trondy and all these guys that was, give me whatever I want. I'll make a beggar and a physician and a doctor and, you know, just by reinforcement. That was the power of, of behaviorism at the time. Everybody was made to believe that um, there is uh, really, I. Have a bunch of very cool pictures of this kind of. Uh, there was one that was going around on social media a few years back with a little dachshund on this. Uh, what do you call these sticks? The wooden sticks. That's trying to pretend that it's tall. And and the meme was saying, "They told me that I Still. can be anything I want to be." So I decided to be a Doberman. And uh, and and basically, this is kind of a big problem. I don't want to go off on on that, but it's an important thing for me and since we are talking puppies and genetics and it always comes to one place where we have to talk about genetics versus the environment and for all these years it was very even if you want politically incorrect to think that we are not equal and no, we we with the right put in the right environment put it with the right training put with the right motivation we can be whatever we want to be even though deep in ourselves we know it's not possible like i know it's just i'm not going to be an astrophysic i'm not going to be michael jordan it, you know um but <clears throat> that was uh you know i i went that route i went the route to where there was times where we believe that okay well there is a, as i mentioned earlier well, i actually at least 15 years or so before I started working there and there was a an important guy at the time. I think his name was, I don't know if his first name was Clarence or whatever, but Fastenberg. And he was the first one to talk about testing puppies because they had their own breeding programs. And they did all sorts of testing and did all sorts of evaluations. And then they tried to raise the puppies in the right direction. And then I was reading a book at the time, way before I started to work there, saying how after all that selection and all this raising and direction, they improved the breeding program to from, from 40% success rate to 80% success rate. And once I started to work there, I of course see it scan. and then it's not true. Um, You know, it's a 50-50 still. Um, Then there was, uh, (laughs) you know, I'm sure a lot of people that are listening are familiar with all the other uh, super puppy program and this kind of program and all this kind of, you know, pretty much the puppy gets born and you start doing all these little things with the Q-tip and the cold temperature and whatever and just kind of, and it all makes sense in theory. But then I started working at, I mean, Meanwhile, I'm breeding and I'm trying all these things. And luckily enough, I'm not training dogs um, and selling dogs that are going way out. I actually was able to keep track of my dogs at the time. Right now I have, um, and since what, 89, I started to breed. So I have a, a little over a thousand puppies that I have bred. And I keep very good track of what I do as far as breeding, just because it's interesting for me. It's not a, it's really not a money thing. Same thing with the training. You know, okay, we do this all this thing, and environment is super important. And then I stopped working at Guide Dogs and got a job at the SPCA in San Francisco as an animal behaviorist, rehabilitating all the the pit bulls that are basically. I was the person to decide which dog we're going to give a try and which dog needs to be put down. And in a lot of ways, very depressing and very hard job because I knew that there were dogs that I can help, but then there was nobody to take them home. Um, but what I found was that there were dogs that we knew were certain. They never seen nothing besides their backyard and a six feet later and they hear the cars and they're definitely curious. They're definitely alert. They're definitely observant. Maybe at certain things they kind of go walk over it and that, that, that became very interesting to me. That was the moment where I really started to pay attention to genetics and that was a big turnaround. So at this point of the story for me genetics is really, really uh, a deciding major factor. Um, There is a bunch of, you know, name is Robert Plomin. It's a very interesting dude that turned around everything a few years back, maybe four or five years back on genetics. Um, He has a very interesting book. It's called Blueprint. But he had something that, I I always try to explain and and the way he said it was so cool. And, and what he said was parents matter, but they don't make a difference. I was like, okay, this is very kind of, you have to actually say it, at least I had to say it a few times to myself and thinking over and over to understand the meaning of it. And, um, you know, like as a trainer, you feel deep down that you can make some difference in how the puppy develops, but. And that has been you know for the most part of the last century, the the environmental influence was, you know, called nurture and and was considered crucial for for you know who you will become. But then genetics research just really shows that that's not how it goes. And uh, and he goes to a very interesting cases. Um, and, and basically, we would be really essentially the same person if if we were adopted at birth and raised in a different family. And the, the, all these breakthroughs in genetics happen to um, twin studies. So, like you know, when you have the the identical twins, they're basically cloned, right? It's the same. It's a split cell. It's a split egg. Like it's one to one identical it's like if you clone it or if it's identical twin that's why it's called identical twin and then you have the other twins that basically they are their brother and brothers or brother and sister that are just born together but they they are really different and um i think it was in england they it was a big big deal and that's what turned around things very, very dramatically in the last five years, if you want, but uh and three identical twins, which is very rare to happen, normally it's only two but what what I did was uh two uh split again, so that's how they came three, and it was in the one of the world war times, and the mother she had no choice she she put the the kids. I was going to say, put the dogs for adoption. <laughs> so she put the kids for adoption at, a, I mean, completely infant, you know? And, and so they go, the, the one, the one goes, the one baby with a pretty wealthy, educated, high IQ family, promising future. The other one goes into an average working middle class. And then the other one, it's just tough work for him. He, he didn't, he, he just, you know, he had to go to, to whatever was available. Raised completely differently from infants, infant, not knowing that they're, you know, twins and any any of it. Until one day, the one kid is already now a, a college student or, or something, university. I can't remember exactly the story, but he goes into the hallway and everybody starts calling him, hey, Mike, what's going on? Mike, Mike, Mike. And he's like, What the fuck? I'm not Mike. Until Mike actually walks straight onto him on the hallway. And there is nothing to be said. It's like what and immediately they didn't mean it. They they backtrack everything and they they find out the the story. And it was well news. And as it makes the news, the third one watching them on the news. And he's like, This is weird. Now what happened with this? make it again shorter but it's it's a very interesting story to to show you the power of genetics they they basically you know had everything all all the similar interests all the similar capabilities everything was very much the same they didn't matter the one was raised there and the one was raised there and the one the parents wanted them to be electrician or the other one had to be a doctor they all had, there they they was just some overwhelmingly common interests and abilities um, to backtrack and see how you can have, even we know when you have kids in the same household, they are raised by the same parents, they are raised with the same intentions. And it doesn't work. It, it just, you, you, we have this program and, and in a way it, it's who we are. And I really believe this in dogs and I consider myself very fortunate that I have this whole, I I'm doing it for so long that I, I, I go back probably a of my own dog. On top of that, I follow all the dogs that I breed. Like I wouldn't breed to a dog that uh, is a champion or is um, you know, that, that will not be the, the criteria I would need to see. I would definitely need to see the dog and I would definitely need to see what the dog produces unless I want to take a chance, which I sometimes do. There is always room for experiment and say, okay, you know, that that sounds very promising. But just because it sounds promising and looks wonderful doesn't mean that you will have that ultimate combination. Um, still, the, the, the genes need to interact and, and decide what's going to come out. Um, that's also part of How when when I when I think of breeding, I have like with Malinois. There's and with with every dog. If you if you start to think as a breeder that way, you can you can definitely know, and and that is uh like there is lines of dogs that they're just kind of genetically more primitive, like they're. You know, I wouldn't say that they're stupid, but they're on their own. It's like, no, this is what I do. And I'm really good at this, and that's what I'm doing. And then you have a different type of dog so that are more of a thinker kind of dog, much more trainable and much more in tune with the trainer. And and so in, in my breeding, I always try to make this to come together. But at the same time, I have to make sure that I also keep the two Separate, but if I put them all the time together, I will not be able to get back. And then I have to search for outside for something like that. I don't know if that makes sense to you guys or not.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely.
1: But when uh, when I consider breeding, it's the the most important part of my program, and and anything that I teach, if, when, like whenever I teach this kind of stuff, I I try to emphasize that you you cannot go anywhere. Now it's, uh, when I talk like this, there is always the question. There is always, uh, somebody that's going to be bring something with, uh, uh, epigenics or, or if the genetics are determined, the behavior is genetically determined. And these are, it's kind of misunderstanding. You know, it's not, I'm not saying that, uh, um, uh, the dog behavior is genetically determined, uh, uh, which it, it is on in, in some way. Let me try to see how like, um, like there is the, this big clash of, of the behaviorism and how I was telling you about the, the, oh, just give me anything, the blank slate, give me anything. As long as it's blank slate, I will reinforce and punish and I will make it what I want. I will just mold it to whatever I want. And then we find out that it doesn't work. And we knew that it doesn't work. It's like you, you look at in the eighties, what they were trying to do with the, the gay community, you know, it's like, no, no, we're going to change. We're going to show you this picture and we're going to shock you. And then we're going to show you this picture and you're going to, no, it doesn't work like that. You, you this is beyond you, what you like to do. You're programmed and, and slowly but surely we're getting there. And it's very, very, very just not accepted because it's such a, like we are so used to thinking that, no, you can be whatever you want. You just need to try harder. And, and, um, you know, the, the, the thing with the environment is of course the dog, the behavior cannot occur without, uh, evolved adaptation and environmental input that's going to trigger the development uh, of the adaptation. like, uh, like, um, like, give this example and see if i can do it correct if um uh, let us let, talk about humans for a moment let's talk the how do you say it calluses the the things on your hands when you
0: yeah, a work with
1: a shovel for too long you know and and thought out uh an evolved callus producing adaptation Combined with the environmental influence to repeat the friction to the skin, right? So, so, on one hand, you are there. There is something that has evolved that that you are producing calluses because of the friction, which is the environment, and and so uh, um, when you when you 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 cannot say that the calluses are genetically determined and occur regardless of the input from the environment. But what we can say is that the calluses are the result of a specific form of interaction between the environmental input, that repeated friction to the skin, and the adaptation that is sensitive to the repeated friction that contains the instruction to grow the new skin, right? kind of I, I don't know how right. to say a, a, a easier way but but it's uh, you 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 have to have you have to be programmed and then the environment can only simulate to 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 wake up the the program instruction to say oh I need to act now this is the time yeah and and um, there is another confusion that that people will talk that um you know if it's all genetic, then we cannot change it. And, and there, is, there is a truth into this, but it's a, like if we stay with the callus example, like you, if we designed a, a, a certain change in, in how we work with the shallow, so we minimize the, the rubbing of the skin, then that's going to prevent, prevent the activation of, of that callus-producing mechanism. Right? so so the knowledge of this mechanism and the environmental input that triggers the activation they they will decrease the production of cow so so yes environment can its it, it, it matters to, to some level but it doesn't make the difference as that uh, Robert Geis says um, so the, the the genetics for me is, it's its Like I would look at a puppy and I would see something that it it just will, let's say there is dogs when you are observant and you know the parents and the grandparents and the grand grandparents and so on, you see how they look at things. You see what they like, you know what they will like before they even know that they know what they like. I see him, he's gonna drink water and he's like, okay, no, I'm going to lay down and that's how I'm going to drink water. And I'm like, I know you, I know who drunk like that. I know, I know who like, you know, all this thing you actually, when you, when you know the background of the parents and, and, and the grandparents and the grand grandparents, everything really comes together. Just like how we look at, you know, like, like. The older people, they look to the, their grandchild and they're like, hey, you're just like your dad or just like whatever. And exactly. nobody else really, they think that all these old people just talking, you know, but they actually really mean it and see it. And that's how it goes. And it's very interesting. And so I'm, um, I'm super big on genetics. Like super super big on genetics, and also helped me with the training. Which when we talk about it, I'll well, we'll bring it up again. Right. Um, again, environment. I used to do all sorts of things, just like everybody else. Um,
0: well, it's a you know you, it's interesting that you know, bring so, that up because when we interviewed John Brandon from Shallow Creek, uh, Eric and I viewed him at, at Blue Line. Um, Last year, and you know they had a uh, program that they got to do with um, a South Korean biotech firm where they ended up cloning a uh, a really nice dog that is on um, a, a specialized unit um, in the government. It doesn't really matter who, but um, dog super nice dog, um, very successful um, in his job. So they they didn't select the dog for cloning any other reason than he was a nice dog, and that's the dog they had at the time that was like, sure, we'll pick him. Um, and they got two puppies out of the thing. And, you know, for those people that haven't been up there, Eric can tell you that their, um, their facility is awesome, but the dogs are separated. Like, the dogs can't really see each other. And John was describing how these dogs, these two clones, so I, they're effectively identical dogs, so theoretically, um, how much they were just like the original dog, and then how the dogs did the exact same mannerisms. Um, like, when they would go into the kennel, they would both turn to the right and circle. Um, they would do. They would lay down a certain way, and so we got into a conversation during that pod, that episode um, where it was, we're, what exactly what you're talking about? Like, is it nature? Is it nurture? Is it, you know, is it a combination of the two? And I, you know, I think you summed it up very well, and kind of dovetailing into the whole conversation that Brandon had about how that was got a little bit of both, and he was like, you know, the dogs were good genetically because we knew what they were going to turn out like because we had one already. I mean, there was were literal identical clones of this dog. Um, and they were individuals still, but they were both largely the same way. And, um, I think Eric asked him, like, did you, I think Eric said, did you train in the same way? And like, oh yeah, I mean, they were both were trained the same way, which after we come back from the break here in a second, we'll get into the whole conflict thing. And then we'll talk about how genetics play a good part of how you train a dog and the selection process too. So, um, everybody listen, uh, hang out. We'll be back in just a second. Yeah, hang on, we'll be back I'm, in just a second. I'm
1: going to have to back up and watch that for sure. That's very interesting.
0: <laughs> we'll, put the note, we'll put it in the show notes for everybody what the episode it is. Mm-hmm. This thing it's back in the 40s. Uh, but, yeah, we'll be back in just a second. Hey, everybody, thanks for listening. We're going to take a break real quick, uh, and we're going to pay some bills, and we're going to address some of our fantastic sponsors. Hits Canine Training Conference is going to be the first one. This is America's premier canine training sp- seminar packed to the brim with some of the world's best instructors and Eric and I. You know we're going to be teaching the scenario-based training seminar uh, that revolves around the hrd company that we also have and uh, you know we're going to do the whole dog and pony show Eric's going to tell us jokes and i'm going to talk about case law there are going to be other instructors that are going to be covering great topics from case law to admin to bite work to detection to tracking everything in between for all working dogs there's no better place to learn and no better place to network with other handlers breeders and trainers hits 2020 is being held in scottsdale arizona this year from august 18th to the 21st to hurry up and register and i know all of you listening wait till the last damn minute to, to register don't do that because the price goes up go to hits canine that's letter k number nine dot net or call jeff barrett at 863-529-5113 make sure you get signed up come to scottsdale i hear the hotel has a wave pool that you can surf in so uh, I'll, i'm bringing my board shorts
2: And Ray Allen Canine Manufacturing, it's no secret that we love Ray Allen Canine Equipment. We use their products every single day. Their mission statement says it all. To be a world leader in quality and innovation of professional canine equipment for police, military, Schutzen, and Ring Sport. To exceed our customers' expectations and delivery on time, every time, at a fair price. We full-heartedly believe they've held true to that. Since it is our go-to one-stop shop for everything dog.
0: One of the longtime sponsors of working dog radio from the beginning has been Highland canine in North Carolina, tactical police canine AKA Highland canine in North Carolina offers training seminars and consulting globally for police, military and non-government agencies. They provide customized training programs to address specific problems and meet the needs of your organization. Check out their wide array of handler courses, instructor courses, supervisor courses and online courses at tactical police training.com uh jason and aaron Perguson are two of our most favorite people and they have been with us since the beginning so hit them up
2: we get it fueling a working dog can be tough but they need that high quality food to give them the energy and nutrients that they require for the work we ask them to do kinetic dog food has a great balance of healthy meats and grains and is made specifically for working and sporting dogs They have a full line of foods and supplements available, and they've been working to perfect their line with thousands of dogs in hundreds of departments across the U.S., and you can buy it locally, online, or at Tractor Supply. Another one of our favorite partnerships is with the one and only Dogtra. These guys are producing some amazing tools in the dog training world, everything from e-collars, GPS tracking, ball training, Bark collars. If it's electronic, Dogtra is the best. They are truly revolutionizing the way you communicate with your dog. Plus, they give us a great discount code. Go to Dogtra.com.
0: Everybody hears me say all the time, you can't teach dogs to bite people, and I'm shocked when they do. Inevitably, I get bit. You've all heard me talk about how I get tagged, and being tagged by a dog sucks. So I've used quick Term <laughs> to help myself, uh, but before... I had to go to the doctor's office. Uh, It it definitely helped keep down infection and everything else. And I've had some uh, non-scarring because of it too. So it's pretty good, but it's no exaggeration. The stuff is great. Once daily treatment for any skin condition on small wounds to help stop little issues from becoming big ones that your admins are sure to love. It comes in a spray. It comes in an ointment. It comes in a dressing quick term. is great at creating protective barrier and promoting wound healing. There's no reason not to have a bottle of this in the patrol car, your kennel or your first aid cabinet. Plus it's, it's, uh Temperature stable So you can keep it in the patrol car When it's cold, when it's hot, whenever And it'll still be good Make sure you hit them up at vetcare.us And use the discount code 10WDR For a discount On your first purchase Which is going to be 10% Have
2: you ever dreamed of having your own kennel But don't know where to start Horizon Structures has taken All of the guesswork out of building a kennel Everything is pre-built to your specifications and preferences and then assembled and dropped off at your land. Boom, new kennels. And these things are amazing. You've got to see them to truly believe them. Their website, horizonstructures.com, is a one-stop shop. Build your best kennel, your favorite things you want. Check it out, horizonstructures.com.
0: All right, everybody. We are back with Ivan Malabanov. Um, don't fast forward through commercials. Um, I just want to remind everyone too that um, we're recording this during um, the coronavirus apocalypse, and everybody's home watching Tiger King, and you're sucking up my bandwidth. So um, <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna edit this to to make it as coherent um, as possible. It sounds really good on our end, but I just want to make sure that everybody knows. Uh, that that's what's going on. Um, So yes, everybody go outside. You can go outside. Just don't touch anybody and don't like doorknobs. Uh, (laughs) It's it's spring. Go outside. You're not going to be sick. Uh, So uh, we were just talking before the, before the break um, about the long breeding program um, that Ivan's done and about the success he's had raising um, and selecting young dogs and puppies, bringing them all the way up to a world level and how the differences between nature and nurture and, You know, there's an inherent type of things that some dogs have, and some of them are just primitive. Um, Some dogs are just just genetically like that, Um, and it kind of is what it is. And, you know, we talked about, like, how the parents impacted, and then we talked about um, Brandon up at Shallow Creek having those two dogs that were um, uh, cloned, and how, um, Eric, what did you say, like, the dogs spent, they were, like, 10 runs apart, and they acted the exact same the entire time?
2: Yeah, he said that uh, it was a little creepy that their movements within the kennels were exactly the same. Um, they don't learn it from each other. They can't even see each other. But uh, when you walked up to the kennels, uh, their reaction to you and the way they moved were were identical. Um, Interesting. But again, that goes back to, if you think about what I haven't said in, in the first half, is you know, you know, you see this a lot. You'd be like, yeah, she lays down to drink her food. Well, yeah, because her mother did that. You know, right. um, I'm not surprised by that. But so I've probably said that a lot about dogs. Not, and when you think back to it, that it's so true.
0: Yeah. So coming back, one of um, Ivan's yeah. things is um, a, a, a we t- he talks a lot about, um, if you go to his website, which we'll put in the show notes and everything else, about conflict-free tri- training um, and kind of knowing what type of handler you are and knowing what type of um, trainer you are and how that plays into the selection process. So one thing that Eric and I see a lot um, with HRD stuff um, is conflict with the handler. Rigney talks about it a lot. Um, and conflict doesn't necessarily mean um, that the dog is under stress from the handler. It just means that he could be confused, which is causing stress. He's not clear. He's so conflict can come from many things. Um, so, Ivan, why don't you talk about um, a little bit about that and let's connect the dots for everybody?
1: All right, let's give it a try. Um, um, oh, with um, I came up with a name some when when um, eventually when I started to make more of uh, videos with canine training system. And it was like, well, what, who, who, did you learn with? Who did you, what do you call that training? Cause it's different and whatever. And, and that, that was the time that they made me think. And I'm like, well, I, I don't know what it's just what I do, but really what's going on when, what my objective in my training is to be able to interact without creating conflict. And that's exactly kind of what you said. Um in those DVDs at the time, uh with the markers and so on. And I named that training without conflict here communication. Whenever I that and everybody wanted to walk this is a little different, we need wanna see what that is. A lot of the force free community kinda got baited because of the name. Training without conflict. Well that means maybe training without punishment. And without negative reinforcement and we, you know, it's all good stuff. So I would have people that would come from travel from all over, like I would be in Germany and there will be people from Finland or whatever. And they'll be like all positive and all excited because that was the time also that, you know, it, it became very popular. Can we, can we train without, without can we just use right. positive reinforcement? It's like. And everybody jumped on that train. Every serious trainer got interested in it. Of course we did. And, of course, we find out, yes, of course you can train it. but Who trains better? You know, how far does that take you? And then we started to see the limitations. And, you know, so I, w- I would have these people coming to my seminars, and, and they were just confused, and I almost felt bad that um, they are there because they were coming for a different product. I'm like no it's not that it's a training without conflict really what I mean is that the dog understands what I want, and of course it can have the option to, to take a chance and break the rules and then there will be consequences naturally there will be some penalties uh, it's not life is this is just how it goes. We are again genetically programmed to get attracted and to approach something and on the other side to avoid something that's worse. And it's not just us. This is like we can we can go down to the like the one cell organism and that's so deeply programmed in life in our planet. Avoid an approach. It's just fundamental biologically for all all of us. And so so not to use it in Training. When you specialists are training in, you know, and you want to do the best you can limiting one side, it's just you're handicapping yourself. But the problems with training where I get to cringe and, and close my eyes and a lot of times walk away is when I see dogs just getting hammered over and over. And the dog really just doesn't even try no more because they think that's how it goes. At this point, I'm going to get hammered and I'm just going to take it and life's going to go on. They are not even trying to think that this is, there is even a slight possibility to avoid it. Because over and over, whenever they try it, they, they realize that it's not an option. And so the conflict, there is, of course, also sometimes there is interesting thing with conflict because conflict also can lead, to especially when you when you talk about recovering from uh, um, something that you've learned incorrectly, whatever that is, and you've already done it so many times, and you try to find, well, is there something else to be learned? Is there not? And finally, you come to that conclusion. Okay, that's it. There is nothing more to be learned, and that's it. And next thing you know, the trainer side like um i'm not sure if i make sense like this let me let me back up a little let, let's say you're teaching some some chain of behaviors or and you get stuck in this drills of muscle memory over and over and over until you finally decide okay i've done this now for two months and now it's time for me to go to the next stage and this for me is like the, the one of the most common and really kind of incorrect ways to train a dog because you are not allowing the dog to to you, you you're basically saying okay you're not intelligent enough and i'm gonna do that favors for you and i'm gonna decide when you have learned it and when it's time for us to move on it's a big setback in training dogs are so so super intelligent and as a trainer if you are not expecting And you're not ready. The moment you start to teach something and you're not ready for the next stage or you don't even know what the next stage is, you should not be doing it because it can literally happen in that same session instead of five months from then. But if you keep building that muscle memory, what I find is that eventually the dog comes to, in quotes, conclusion. Okay, there is nothing more to be learned. And now we need to try to, oh, but guess what? I think now it's time and I'm going to show you something else. And now it's very hard. Now you got to kind of open that window of the brain to feel new information, but it's shut. So what you need to do, what I find that is the easiest thing to do is you need to create a little conflict in a way that you question, like, whoa, I think something changed. And now you're able to bring the, the... the interest to maybe i need to rethink something and that's the moment where you can introduce something that you need to even if it's a problem solving or if you need to go on with uh, whatever the train of behavior is and so on you know so but um the that's the the essence of the training without conflict is that moving on to understanding that there is a momentum of learning and it can happen super super fast. Um, like like when people see me training sometimes they're just like, Well, you just went from zero to hundred in, in one session. And I would be just walking with food for another at least two months. And there is no need because when you when you know what you're teaching and you're actually allowing yourself and the dog to think to to give that information when the dog says okay I'm ready is there something more? That's the best time to give that something more. Not before, not after. There is an actual moment when the brain is like okay I got it. Is there something more? And if you hold on for too long and you keep drilling, that brain's gonna shut. Or if you throw the new things too soon. Before the dog has actually understood to the, the, the first concept, then you're going to have holes, And then you're going to have to call back and problem solve. And a lot of times, trainers always end up problem solving all the time. Um, I, I believe that training doesn't need to be about problem solving. If you constantly problem solving, that means the system is not correct. There is a, I don't know if I would go that far in this, but there's like, I, I divide it in two ways to train. like two main ways. The one is, of course, the the kind of Skinnerian behaviorism, you know, when we talk, I'm going to make some clicker training, but it's not necessarily about the clicker, which we will talk about as well. But, you know, basically talking about the reinforcement, talking about the blank slate and, okay, I'm going to make you and I'm going to reinforce and I'm going to punish and I'm going to whatever. And that's one way. There is another way. And to me, some way more interesting way, and this is the way that I've spent all of my time, all these thirty years, focusing on. I, I just made a, a video on playing ball. It's called Chase and Catch. That I talk a lot about this, but in in briefly here, I'm gonna mention like uh, you can other way to train relies more on the dog's instincts and the relationship to the owner or the trainer. You know, like the, for the most part, it doesn't matter if you are with a clicker and food, and or if you are escape avoidance and steaming on working level. It really doesn't matter what you're doing. You're focusing on behaviors. Most of the time, yeah, we have these slogans and we talk about emotions, but, but ultimately the training goes around the behavior itself. And for me, I have come to that realization just like with the genetics versus environment that behaviors one way or another they're very easy to teach and if they're not that easy to teach and you struggle you're going to pick up from someone else how they did it and and even if you struggle a little more eventually it's going to make it happen assuming you have the right dog and, and you keep some patience and some common sense it's the motivation that that everything comes down to it's like how bad do i want to do that it or that recall, or the letting go of that guy right now. How much I understand that. I find that uh, motivation is, is so much more interesting. And then tapping into the instinct and that genetic programming that, that we selectively breed for, waking it up and instead of trying to fight it, just find a way to guide it and use it. It it, it goes to a very different way of, of interaction when you what what also happens is like the the dogs when i work with my dog and this is really anybody that has seen me training or or interacting with my dogs or any dogs in seminars they they act different and just in a some more interesting way it's like a they don't see me as, oh, no, I, I got to do this because I have to escape or avoid the aversive. Or I have to do this because you're my food source. The the. Of course, there is reinforcement in what I'm talking about, but that kind of reinforcement is uh, uh, primarily uh, on a social level. And and it definitely involves emotions. And emotions is so funny because everybody, this is like a, one of the very trendy word but um, you know we all can tell when the dog, how the dog feels and we know now I mean, of course there's so many uh, examples even in science now they put them under a scanner and do brain brain scans and and, you know they say a word or they do some gesture or whatever being a strange person, the owner and and what happens is the dog's brain lights in the same part of the human's brain, which is really not a surprise for any doctrine or that spends time. We know that. It's just that now science kind of confirms it to us. Um, emotions are, are like the, at the top of the list for me. It's like above, even above motivation, because I just said motivation is super important. It's not about do you know how to sit. It's, we, we can get through that it's how bad do you want to sit? But I actually go further than that. And I don't care how bad do you want to sit if you're doing it with the wrong emotion. Because the moment your emotion changes and you're like, oh, I may not need to do it now. For me, emotions are really about motivation, about the the confidence, the intensity, the the focus, uh, because Ultimately, to me, the, it's the emotion that dictates how a dog will perform on a competition, on, on police work, or whatever whatever it is. It's all going to come down to how do I feel about it. And making sure that you create that right environment, to me, it's, it's been a, what all these years I, I always try to struggle and, and work on.
0: Anybody that's ever trained a Husky or a Shiba Inu? knows exactly what you're talking about those dogs do not want to do anything except pull stuff and normally they're owners um but they i know exactly what you're talking about and you know um some dogs are you know super independent um and want to naturally not be near the handler or um or extremely handler focused and i naturally tell handlers especially for um Like some of the certifications that require a mandatory out and recall or a mandatory out and guard and then recall, Um, especially like in PSA, I tell them, too, like there are some dogs that are naturally not going to leave the decoy. Um, And then there are some that naturally want to leave the decoy and Mm. will recall. And a lot of times in PSA, you get a choice, right? Like, do you want to do an out and guard or an out and recall? Like, don't try and prove something. Like, do whatever the dog wants to do. And, you know, so and it depends on... You know, what the, like you said, it depends on the motivation. Like, what is motivating the dog? Um, you know, and that's where I, I try to have conversations with handlers about something I call competing motivators, where, you know, the highest form of drive expression for this dog is biting a decoy or biting a person. So, getting him to out and recall without pressure <clears throat> is a very clear um, exercise in competing motivators. Like, he would rather stay there and bite this dude than come back and play with you. I mean, because that's his highest drive expression and, you know, explaining that to some guys is like, uh, so, you know, I have something I call the Arkansas out because of the way the state of Arkansas does their their state certifications. And, um, it's basically not an out, it's just a recall. So to recall, the dog has to let go. So, (laughs) I mean, that's how we teach the recall for them. So, but yeah, I mean, continue with what you were saying about, um,
1: yeah. So yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, pretty much within the lines that I, I was suggesting. And, and uh, so the, the um, like when we talk about the, again, genetic predisposition and understanding what the dog is programmed and what it likes to do, you, if you don't find a way as a trainer to utilize it and use it, create the motivation to do something that you want them to do that they may not like, but actually create that association. This is the cool part for me in training to, to say, hey, I, I will make you like this because I'm going to tap into the exact thing that you're completely obsessed about and you have really good interest to go that way because ultimately it's going to lead to what you want to do. And, and, and there is always this mind game. And it's very interesting. And when you do it right, it always works. Um, you said something really good about the out. Interesting. I have um, lately, I made a video. I've been working with this for a very long time and finally was able to make a video on a, how I teach an out and, and my thinking of a out. And I don't know if that's going to be interesting for people, but if it is, then you can, of course, uh, we can put some link to it. The, the problem I see with a dog that is thought to bite, at some point it's asked to let go. It goes to, it goes to affecting his emotion in a way that we're going to either create some frustration, anger, um, we, will, we will mess up something. And the reason we will mess up something is because of how the dog perceives the now. And it doesn't matter. There is there's so many different ways, and and I'm sure most of the people that listen are aware. You can, you know, you can first teach the dog to play with a tug and walk up and play dead. Eventually, he dies and and he bites again, and or you can just stay out and just yank his head off of the thing, or you can decide that well we don't do it because. It's not going to happen no matter what. For me, the interesting thing about the out is, again, how the doctor sees the command. And as long as the dog, there's two ways a dog can see the command, or two ways that, as a trainer, we present the out command. One is let go so you can get something else, and it's way cooler than what you have. And that's kind of what you were talking about until that moment comes that that competing reinforcer says, no, you cannot beat me. And whatever you have at that point, it's irrelevant. The dog's not going to respond. That's one, one way. And, and it will work sometimes. And a lot of times it will fail, especially when we get into a real fight, it's like, dude. Don't mess with me with that tuck toy. I am in the middle of a freaking fight, right? Now, the other option is to play dead, weigh them out, or correct them very hard. Or don't correct them hard, but do whatever aversive. So. so the dog basically, what will happen with any of those situations, it will create, the dog basically is going to end up losing the fight. So we have a puppy, we're teaching that puppy to fight. We're teaching him that he's the king of the world. We're teaching him that he's invisible, that he can take on anybody. And later on we decide, okay, now it's time to introduce the out, and one way or another we introduce the out, and it's working. Eventually the dog matures, goes on the street, starts to, he knows who he is, he knows the situation. And now you ask him to out. And deep inside, the dog feels that He's going to lose. And you cannot convince him otherwise. So that was uh, for a long time. And and I, I had this for a long time in my head, how you avoid this problem. And I came to it. And, and you know, even when we say, oh, we're not going to correct it, or we're going to hold the Turk toy, and he's going to eventually let go. Well, he will let go. But you're still making him a loser. And you're still showing him that, If you're persistent and you say you will let go, that you're going to win over his will. And when you're trying to teach that dog from a puppy, hey, you're the toughest kid on the block, you can take on anybody. But then it's like, but if somebody just holds on to it, you're going to lose. So one way or another, depending which way of approach of the out is taken, it's either the dog is like, okay there is the times where I'm just simply going to lose. And if he thinks that he's going to lose, then he's like, all right, there is times that I really, really don't want to lose right now, and I'm going to give it a little bit more. I'm going to really seriously try to win this fight. I know I lose most of the time, but this time I'm going to try. So then, of course, we escalate, and eventually we'll win. We always win, even if we need to use the the stick and whatever. And on the other way, the competing, you know, out this so you can get this. And he's like, no, I don't want that. The idea of the, the, the out, the, the way I have done, and, and anyone that's interested in this, thing, uh, you know, again, I, I will, it's a very, very, I'm super proud of this video that I've done. Like, I give this analogy in the video of a fighter, MMA, boxers, whatever it is. They're in the middle of killing each other. But then there is the gong that says the round is over. And he might have been just that split of a tenth of a second to punch him and knock him out. And he stops. But when he stops, he does not for a second consider that he lost. It's just an interruption of the fight. It's to be continued. And, and it's a very, very interesting... Uh, but it's a of course, very long thing and and you know if if anybody is interested in this, um, we we can give some links to this. But that's kind of you know, since we were talking about the, I, I had to mention, and because it's uh it's so interesting it's all about perception, how what we teach. I have dealt with so many crazy dogs that would do just just absolutely insane things. And you think, no, this dog's like he, he, he's a mad dog. He cannot. And they can, as, as long as they understand that they will not lose the fight, and that they, that they are not being tricked to. Oh, I'm gonna give you something else, so you let go of this. When they understand that this is to be continued, it just goes like boom, and they're ready. And you can call them off, or you can do whatever you know. Um, but so that that that's one of the things. But again, it's it's kind of when you when you think about it, it's still going back to emotions. How how you feel about it? What what's at stake? Are you gonna lose something? Are you gonna? You know, you always outweigh the pros and cons of anything that's going on. We're talking. I don't know if we wanna go there, but we were talking like the the selections and then training and and then. Naturally, we went all the way into protection stuff and biting and uh, I've done quite a bit of training with police dogs and, and army dogs and, you know, but there is, for me personally, there is not much, uh, it's, it's way more work to do than, than what the benefits are for me. So I choose not to, but there is always time that I do it because it's really interesting and I know that I'm giving something back to the community um and when i when i do like um out is always been something that everybody just gets like wow this is just game changer instant game changer um but when you when i think of genetics and and we're talking selection and we're talking police dogs and protection dogs is what i kind of do mostly um, you know I mean I do competitions, I do breedings, and I sell puppies, but I also train protection dogs, like seriously trained protection dogs, and the selection is very interesting there because i I believe that uh, to have a really, really really good protection dog, like a dog that I would consider for myself, if I have to go to the mountains in Colombia or if something goes bad as it's could with the situation right now, I would know what kind of dog I would select for myself. And that kind of dog is not so easy to, to find, and it's not so easy for some people to have because there is, again, the genetic predisposition and reaction versus the training. When we talk about, let's say, a police dog, like, I think with a police dog, we can be a little bit forgiven of how how uh, genetically the dog is prepared to fight, and I'll, I'll elaborate on this a little bit so I make sense what I'm talking. Like, let's say when you when you are about to send the dog, you go through the whole sequence of stop, I send the dog, and na na na, and the cars and the sirens, and this is just a a, a very guaranteed methodical buildup to it. And the dog also feels that he's in a team of supporters on his side. Are you like a, a, a high level protection dog? It's not so much the training but it's the it's that genetic reaction. You know, like you you can you can be the, the a black belt in muay thai or Judo or whatever you want but somebody taps you on the shoulder in at the ATM machine, and you will freeze. And then there is somebody else that will tap on the shoulder, and it can be his grandma, and she will get knocked out. And then he's going to say, I'm sorry, Mom. And there is no buildup. And in a protection dog, this is a—it's a, in some way, it's very kind of dangerous things because you don't want to go to the bathroom and go over the hallway and, and maybe step on that dog if the dog doesn't know you. But at the same time, there is no buildup. And if I need a protection dog, I don't need a dog that I have to tell him a few times, no, dude, this is for real. Do it, do it, do it. I want that reaction. And that's, that's genetic. That's selection. And it's not hard to find it. But to find it in a combination with the other good traits that can make it manageable, For a family, that's not easy. And that's kind of, you know, sometimes people laugh, oh, protection dogs, people sell them for so much money. And most of the time in that industry, I I 100% would agree they're completely overblown and they're absolutely worthless. But to get a a dog to do what I just described, like that dog, and to put them in dog situation and to to have a natural fight in the same way that you would do fights with uh how you would train your dogs you know like like do something in the water do something with multiple persons have the guys jump you instead of you whatever make make a, you know make all these scenarios but then on top of that like if you know you have to also go and and show the dog that life the next day goes on as normal and this kind of dog you actually have to show him much more that the life goes as normal than to show him what to do in a situation that they arise because they like that situation in some way and there is this thing about like a, when we talk bravery and, and courage you know there is a there are uh, um are Personality characteristics, right? It's a there is that notion, I don't care what happens to me. If you actually can make this case, then you may absolutely get a, a concession out of a bigger, stronger opponent. That's kind of, you know, that what we call the little dog syndrome, or, or you know, but, but if this is a, a for sure, in, in my opinion, a, a absolutely genetic trait. to to be able to say, you know what, if it comes to this, I don't care what happens to me. It's interesting in an evolutionary perspective because when you, like, let's say you're the bigger, stronger opponent, but you have this nutcase in front of you, but he's ready to die. And then you're going through the cost and benefits. You're like, okay, I, I better walk away because I will win the fight, but I'm going to have damage and that damage is not worth it. Right. And there is a, you know, there is something very cool to be tapped and looked into when we talk selection. And when we talk training about what I'm just talking about right now, and, uh, um, you know, it's a it's very interesting because when we like dogs and, and us, we are, we are so intensely social, Pieces, that, uh, one of the most important things is that we have to second guess what, what the other person will do next. And it, it becomes very complicated, very difficult to, to kind of figure this out. And, and normally we do that by looking into your own, what would I do? And then there is that genetic programming that you, you actually don't look into what would you do. You just do it because this is who you are. You know, um, so it's a, like I, I really, really like to tap into all this kind of emotions and genetics and, and build on that and, and do the, the right selection for the right purpose. And ultimately, people would say, yeah, there is if the dog is really good, he can do anything. And that's true. I absolutely would agree with that. But there is some dogs that will be better at certain things. And if that certain thing is more important to you there is a reason why they're better in that you know again like in the i I did quite a bit of work and i still do a lot a lot of work with shelters and some extreme cases of of difficult dogs and pit bulls and fighting rings and so on i love the dogs they're just one of the most resilient amazing dogs a lot of people in pet homes are are very oblivious, and that's when bad things happen with pit bulls, because people don't understand that the the responses that the dogs have, just like us, you know, fight, flight, freeze, make friends. They're very, very selective through breeding, where backing off is just not in a repertoire of a well-bred pit bull. They... They would know that they would lose the fight, but they, it just doesn't even come to their mind that this is an option. Oh, I can just back off and not and give it, give up. And, and that's going to help. They, they don't, they don't have that as an option just because it's selectively bred not to have it. And it could be that that dog's going to live through the whole of his life and never have to do anything crazy. But if it was put in a situation and it was genetically bred selectively correctly, it can go horrible as it goes so often and people wonder why. Again, like, like my thing with genetics is just so interesting. And then I am much bigger on play than any other training. I use electrical, I use avoidance escape. Um, I don't use food too much, simply because I don't, like, I like the dog to seem more of a, as I was saying earlier, a fellow creature than, than a food source. And and me reinforcing behavior instead of finding a way to cooperate and interact in a social way. I've had, a, just recently, was going to make a video, and I'm still working on it, um, teaching a dog to come recalls with a electric collar. And so I pull this one-year-old dog from the kennel, and I'm trying to make him not to come for about an hour. And we have it on video, and we're gonna kind of probably end up using a lot of the video in the the actual uh, electrical video because it it was just so amazing to see when the dog wants to. And when he has the right emotion, and when it's based on, on that social interaction and cooperation, they're very responsive. They're far more responsive than people give them credit for. I had that dog. I call him. I'm like, okay, I'm not going to give him any reward. I let him do something. I call him again. He flies to me. Then I'm like, okay, let's just put some food on the ground. we we'll put food on the ground. I call him. He comes. I'm like, okay, I know what's going to happen. Let's put this of his best friends out so they can run wild as they do every morning they put the two dogs I call him he just leaves everybody and flies back and uh, um, it, it's very interesting to that there is a whole different level of motivation when the right emotions and when the dog sees the, the, the trainer as somebody that we, we we are actually I wouldn't say we are bodies. We are. And uh, but but this is what I'm talking about. It's not to say that there is no element of authority and reliability. Actually it's the opposite. We definitely have that and we have plenty of that. The 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 thing that people don't understand and, and specifically in the dog training world is that it's kind of stuck in the in the behaviorism and that reinforcement and the all those quadrants. And, and not considering cognition and emotions and evolutionary uh, uh, psychology, um, because when you like play, play is a it's a it's not a social construct. It's not something that we teach. We like especially mammals. We are born. We are biologically programmed to play. It's actually a primal need just as is feeding. But it stimulates in a very different way. It, It lights up a very different part of the brain. And it stimulates you to interact in a very different way. And it satisfies you in a very different way. Like when all other needs are met, we don't, like I say, we eat so we can play. When everything else is met, that's all we want to do. We're very playful. All all mammals are like that. Like you watch them on YouTube. You can see cows and whales and all sorts of creatures. So it's just like, they will find some ways to play. And the cool thing about dog and a person is we are extremely playful. And we have this opportunity. And especially when we talk about the type of dogs that we're working with we select them for some trainability how i was talking about the the primitive and the trainable i didn't mean to say and i'm sure some people think probably wrong already the primitive type of dog you needed in your program because that's where the hardness comes from that's where that you know i am somebody and If you get rid of that, we're gonna have border collies. We don't need border collies to be uh, doing patrol work. But at the same time, there is always the fine line between a guideable dog and a dog that's just on his own. And there is that combination. Um, I'm getting so excited sometimes and I don't know where I'm going with things like that. Um, (laughs) But so the, the play part, for me is the highest level of interaction for me again i when when i train a dog let's say if if everybody teaches a dog to do certain things and we make some kind of a contest and we teach them because we you know and then we talk about let's let's now break it down and see for how long without any reinforcement there is a moment in time that the dogs that you engage in play and game you have tapped into a very different level of interaction and these are the times where they will they will do things and and where we were talking about i was saying there is the two different ways of training one is the your skinnerian kind of shaping by approximation or escape avoidance responses or or something like that and then there is that other more interesting way to where it's the social interaction that's more of a reinforcement but it's through the games and through the play to where it forces you to do something together it creates in your brain there, there is this point that um you know just like it's like when you go to a, you know if a kid goes to a class and there is this one subject that they're like, I really like math or geography or whatever, and, and one is the genetic predisposition and the other is the presentation of the teaching and, and tapping into, I, I will make you like this. I will not make you dependent on, well, you have to avoid something Or you're going to stay hungry if you don't do it. But there is that whole other different approach. And again, to to make sure it's not that I do not use aversive. I absolutely do. But the, the foundation, the base of it. Like if I have a puppy and I would start training, I would be playing. I would not care about uh, um, teaching him, you know, the typical sit down stand for food or, or, you know, feeding and keeping the head up or things like that. I would absolutely not do that. I've never done that. All I would do is play ball, play some tug of war. And as I am playing, I would accomplish several things that are critical for me. One is it's going to build up mental and physical endurance and the mental endurance is very interesting because if a puppy can play ball for a very long time that means he can stay attentive for a very long time on the same path and that's a very good thing to have the other thing is that again when you when you we understand that play is a biological need just as it's food And if a dog doesn't want to play, that means there's something wrong between the two of you. Something is not right. Or if the dog doesn't want to give you a toy and you have to go with another toy, simply because you cannot make him give you that toy, not because the game is this way. That means there is something that is not right between the two of you. And these are the the things that I will focus on at that early age, in that interaction, I'm gonna say, hey, we have one ball. You're not gonna get anything else. But we're gonna figure a way, you and me, how to play together. And of course, there's gonna be rules because every game has rules. And of course, you're gonna try to break the rules because you're opportunistic. But when you try to break the rules, there's gonna be some penalties and we're gonna come to some agreement. All that process is, for me, Absolutely above anything else, because by the time I can play a couple of games with my dog, I know that he likes me. Like if, if he can say, Hey, do you like Ivan? He will be like, yeah, I love him. I don't know why, but yeah. And that to me is important why the dog works for me and then the reliability factor and the improved control and all those other things to where it's like, Hey, no, dude, you got to listen to me. you got to cooperate and we can have a lot of fun and we can go a long way. And then when I decide to teach anything, any of the so-called behavior that typically trainers are busy at that age with their puppies for food, that happens like uh, uh, just, just, Instantly it's so super easy to do. So that's kind of my, my training when we talk about, and that's, um, uh, you know, it's, it's really the fundamentally based on that need to play. And when we talk about protection, we need the, we need the right dog. We need a dog that genetically knows that he's somebody, and then we have to wake him up. And then there is games that I would play to show him that he's somebody. To when it's time for him to do something, he would know how to how to fight. I wouldn't, you know, again like how we were talking. Parents matter, but they don't make the difference. So like when if we do protection training, like when I teach, being being a ring sport, being a street work, there is the need that the dog has to see a lot of different things. But if genetically it's not there, you you will not be able to pass that. And on the other hand, if the dog believes in himself and it's thrown into something that he sees for a first time, he may not execute it in the exact same way as he would if he practiced it but he will definitely try and not give up and do his best to do it and that's kind of the cool part about it's it's like a you know like let's say you i walk in and i'm gonna do jujitsu and and they're gonna teach me how to chalk somebody out using the gi in the very next training session we are doing no gi training now if I fundamentally believe in myself. And if I understand the concept, I'm going to hunt it down. It may not happen in that same instant, but I know where I need to get. And I will hunt it down. And this is the, you know, that's kind of where my training evolves around. I don't know if I make sense. I talk too much. Maybe
2: there's a ton of information for people to ingest and digest in this podcast. Um, your, you do make a lot of sense to me, a lot of sense to Ted, um, and some other folks. And then there's going to be a lot of people listen to this and it kind of just is going to be like, huh, I may have to, uh, rethink what I've been doing. Um, and at this point we're going to go ahead and stop because we're going to end up in a four hour episode and, uh, we try not to be in that long, but I'm like taking notes and fascinated by all this stuff. Um, so real quick, I talk about uh where where you can be found like your you have a website, where you do your videos, uh, that type of stuff so if people wanted to sure. you know, sure. follow up and work with you or and learn from you, where can they go?
1: The my website with training and videos. It's trainingwithoutconflict.com naturally. So trainingwithoutconflict.com that's my my website where i you know from there you have links for a lot of videos that i teach like if you if when i was talking to you about play we just released a video on play um if you're interested in what i was talking about the out teaching the out and problem solving out there is a super cool video there yes ted where can you be found
0: um, you can find me on Facebook, uh, or, and on Instagram, uh, 10 underscore summers. Uh, the kennel is torchlight canine, letter K number nine on Instagram. And the podcast is working underscore dog underscore radio. Um, <clears throat> also be sure to check out Patreon. I'm going to put up a new video. We just put up a video of, uh, one of the PowerPoints we do. Uh, I'm going to put up a new one of us doing a different version of handler, uh, drum circle, uh, with patrol cars, um, and I got several different vantage points of it. So it's another way to run this same scenario. It's testing different skill sets. Uh, what about you?
2: Van S K nine on Instagram for the police stuff. Van S K nine Academy on Facebook for mostly pet stuff. I gotta start putting a little bit of working dog stuff in there too. Um, Van S Doggy Daycare for for the cute puppies, cute doggy stuff. Um although we're going to not have a whole lot of content there, you know, for the next month. Thank you. Coronavirus. Um, yeah, but, uh, anyways, uh, Ivan, this has been amazing. We want to have you on forever. That last statement about clickers will cause an entire another episode. So yeah. I can't wait. We, we can yeah. get into that in a little bit. We appreciate your time. <laughs> appreciate you dealing with the, the laggy internet with the, everybody being on Netflix um watching tiger king but until the next time thanks everybody and yeah. you guys have a great time thanks guys thank you guys our oldest sponsor our first sponsor and our good friend and a great dude all around arno at alm canine equipment uh his suits and his canine tugs and bite sleeves are some of the best in the industry his dude i have a whole array of different uh, hidden sleeves from him of all various levels of dogs uh, he has a discount code for us which is amazing wd radio for 10% off your first order almk9equipment.com give him a give him a shout man arno is a good guy with great quality equipment almk9equipment.com
0: one of the original 3 sponsors that have been with us from the beginning is tripwire operations group llc they're an internationally recognized leading provider of products services and training for federal state local and law enforcement agencies and military units. They are ATF licensed for explosive material manufacturer, importer, exporter, and dealer with a wide range of explosive products to offer, including custom kits. These kits are great for detection canine imprinting, and they have three different kits to choose from. These three kits combined create the complete picture for the explosive threats of canines. Be sure to check them out, tripwireops.org. The music in this episode is used with permission by Brother Deeg. Be sure to check him out at Brother Deeg, that's spelled D E G E dot net. Be sure to check him out there or on iTunes, Amazon, CD Baby, or anywhere you stream media. This episode has been edited and co produced by Alicia Brandt. Visit our other sites at Patreon.com, look for Working Dog Radio, HRD Police and look for the nearest seminar near you. You got your reasons, and I got my wants,
1: still got that feeling, but I'm too.